I'm going to reread part of this text. You stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, open them up there. This will be our text we'll be focusing in on today. It says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin this morning? Father, we come before you and we ask that you would help us to hollow your name. We ask that our prayers would be for your will, not ours, for your kingdom to come. And Father, we ask that you would give us our daily bread, that you would help us from temptation and help us to forgive others as you've forgiven us. And so we ask that the Lord's Prayer wouldn't just be another formulaic expression that's in our minds, but that it would penetrate our hearts and become the formula and the basis by which we approach you with our affections and desires for you. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Every year, the United States Postal Service receives more than 8 million letters written to Santa Claus, full of lists asking Santa for all the things that they want. Things from new bikes, to new video games, to horses, to motorcycles, to cars, to shoes, and new pets named Rover. The requests are as varied as you could imagine, with lists as long as you could imagine, and as wildly extravagant as you could imagine. For instance, one little boy wrote Santa with quite the extravagant request. Here's what he said. Dear Santa, I wanted to tell you I'm fine. I don't know, but if you could, can you possibly make it so I can turn into a dragon? Please. Or a pet dragon. Either one will do, though I would like it if you can make me turn into a dragon. P.S. Happy Valentine's Day. One letter, a boy wrote asking with quite the long list. He was, he was going for it all. He wasn't waiting for other Christmases. And he wrote this. Dear Santa, for Christmas I want walkie-talkies. I would also like police car, a police car, tickets, guns, and all the stuff police have. And also a real police car. I want to play a play phone, a play computer, also a play camera, because I don't know where mine is. I also want all the dinosaur stuff. I like the way this boy thinks. Also, socks and underwear, and my sister wants all the same things too. P.S. I need some medicine for my cough. (laughs) Go big or go home, right? Another boy wrote Santa, realizing that sometimes Santa doesn't deliver. So he decided to let Santa know. He meant business this year. Here's what he said. Dear Santa, you had better bring my pony this year or there will be consequences. (laughs) And another boy who didn't have Santa deliver wrote Santa upset after Christmas saying this, Dear Santa, I'm writing this on the day after Christmas, and I'm very sad. 
For I only received one of the two presents I asked you for. Since you ate my cookies, I will assume that my missing gift was a mistake. I will give you one week to fix this. You know, church, when it comes to prayer, how often do our prayers resemble these young children's letters to Santa? When we pray, do we approach God like he's a cosmic Santa Claus who exists to satisfy our wishes and make all of our little American dreams come true? To give us everything our heart desires, cough medicine to take care of that sickness we have, a new pony, or I mean a car, to replace the one we have because it doesn't look quite as shiny as it used to, especially when it's sitting next to those other shiny cars in the parking lot. Do we ever find ourselves like that little boy writing to God in anger and frustration because he didn't give us exactly what we asked for? Maybe he gave us part, but that wasn't all we asked for. We asked for all these things. And we say, God, you got one week to fulfill what I asked. I think The answer here is clear for us. Sometimes, yes. We do pray this way. We do treat God this way. Which really what this is, this is Disney theology. This is approaching God as if he's the genie in Aladdin with our wishes. But we demand more than wishes. More than three wishes. We say, I'm going to use my wish to wish for infinite wishes, and now I want all of these things. And after all, though, think about this. Why shouldn't we? I mean, Jesus himself says to ask God for our daily bread. I mean, new car is kind of like bread, like I need that to get to my job to earn money for the bread, right? A bigger house, nicer house, like I need these things because, you know, that's, that's a form of bread, right? And aren't we supposed to pray, God, pray to God like this? And if we aren't, then what on earth am I praying to him for? Well, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus answers that question, and he tells us exactly what we're praying to God for. And he gives us what is a model prayer. See, The disciples at one point went to Jesus and they said, hey, John the Baptist teaches his disciples how to pray. Would you teach us how to pray? He says, sure, here's how it looks like. Here's what it looks like. He says this, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our passage this morning is the Lord's Prayer. And in this passage, Jesus, who is God's one and only begotten Son, teaches us how to pray. Keep in mind, this is the Son of God who is a member of the Trinity, right? He's been in close fellowship and communion with God for all of eternity. This is something, if anybody knows about, it would be him, would it not? You know, there's, there's celebrities and stuff, and they will go out east and, get in, and meet monks and all these things to learn how to meditate, to learn how to pray. They'll spend big bucks to do this. And yet right here, church, we have the Son of God Try the second person of the Trinity telling us, here's how you pray. Do you want to have effective prayers? Here's how you pray. This is what your prayer should look like. These should be the motives of your prayers, the, things, the kind of things you ask for. And even as we're going to see today, the order in which we ask for things. And you know what this means? If Jesus is telling us, he says, pray like this, that also means don't pray like this. That means there's a right way to pray and a wrong way to pray, right? Like, that's, that's pretty obvious. If he says pray like this, that means there's ways we shouldn't, all right? And so if anybody, anybody ever heard this before, they said the most important thing about prayer is that you just pray. It's not what you pray. Has anybody ever heard that? That's not true. Not even a little bit true, right? Because Jesus doesn't say, oh, just pray to God. Whatever comes out, you're good. As long as you're just showing diligence there, you're all right. No, 
He says, pray like this. And then he describes it and gives us a model of how to pray. And you know what the most remarkable thing about this is in Jesus' prayer? I think it's this, what it doesn't begin with. Right? Look at the text. Does it begin with requests for ponies, bikes, walkie-talkies, or a new phone? doesn't, does it? What does prayer begin with? Let me shout out the answer. Worship. Prayer begins with worship. And in fact, I'll go one step further to say that not only does prayer begin with worship, but the essence of prayer is worship. And if we miss that, we miss prayer. And so the question we must ask then is how can our prayers be worship? If there's a right way to pray where our prayers are driven by worship and a wrong way to pray to pray where they're not driven by worship, how do we pray so that they are driven by worship? How then do we worship God in prayer? Well, three ways. Here's our outline this morning. We worship God in prayer by approaching him first as our Father, second as our Majesty, and third as our Lord. Turn your Bibles with me and look at verse 7 through 9 of Matthew chapter 6. This is where we're going to camp out this morning, so I'm not going to put them up on the screens. You all got Bibles. Pull them up there and we'll follow along here, if you would. Verse 7 says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Why? Because they think that they will be heard for their many words. And then verse 8, Do not be like them. Why? He answers that. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father. Stop the prayer right there. Is that important? Of course it is. Right? Because Jesus is pointing out here to us, we don't pray like the pagans, right? We pray to our Father, right? And he's contrasting again for us the right approach to God and the wrong approach to God in our prayer. What is the wrong way? Let's talk about that before we get to the right way. Don't approach God as a babbling pagan, right? Who's simply reciting the prayer over and over, your rosary, whatever. Like, that's not the point of prayer, okay? Don't simply repeat it over and over as if, is if this is some magic words or magic incantation, incantation, there we go, to get God to do what we want him to do, right? We don't do that. It's not like, man, I really want to get this, so I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to get up extra early and pray for three hours every morning until God delivers, right? Just keep asking on and on. Lord, please give me the new bike. Lord, please give me the new bike. Lord, please give me the new bike. No, we don't babble on and on as the pagans. And the word here for babbling, I like that. That's what the King James Version used. I like that word babbling. It kind of gets right to it. But the ESV uses empty phrases. But the word that's used here is actually a word that means to stammer. That's a more literal direct translation of it. And the idea is that prayer isn't to be used like some sort of religious activity by which we use as currency to go to God in order to buy the things we want from him. Does that make sense? That's not the purpose of prayer. And that's how we often, if you're like me at all, that's how we often start to begin to think about prayer, right? I give my prayers to God. He wants these prayers. It's like a currency exchange, and then he gives me the goods. Here's the money. Give me the goods, God. And then when he doesn't deliver, what do we do? We get upset about this, right? It's a problem. It's the wrong way to pray. And so we must not babble on before God. And so we must not think, God, I will bring you my prayer requests every morning and then you must deliver. No, we pray to God as Father. We approach God not as a vendor who has the commodities we need, but as a God to be worshipped. 
as father. You remember the story of Elijah, right? And the prophets of Baal. What happened with Elijah and Baal? Well, up on Mount Carmel, Mount Carmel, and I say it, it sounds like a delicious mountain to me, but God's prophet Elijah challenged all of these other false prophets of the fake god Baal to a contest to see whose God would deliver and answer their prayers. And here's how the contest worked. They were each going to make an altar, right? They were going to put the wood on it, put the sacrifice on it, and then they were going to pray to their God to light the fire. They couldn't light it themselves. They couldn't go over there with gas and a little lighter like I do with my campfires in the backyard when I'm being lazy. But they couldn't do that. They had to pray and ask God to light the fire. All right? And so the pagan prophets of Baal went first, and they started crying out. They were dancing all around the fire. They are babbling on and on until like past noon, but nothing happened. Please, Baal, hear our prayers. Light this fire. Baal, 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 Baal. You know, just over and over and over. Babble, babble, babble. And over and over they babbled on, asking Baal to answer their prayers, but he doesn't. Why? Because Baal's not God. Yahweh is God. And so Elijah sits there with his, what I like to call, and this is probably my new proof text for this, his spiritual gift of sarcasm, and he mocks them relentlessly with it. Like, he's just dunking all over them with this thing. He's like, oh, maybe Baal can't hear you. Maybe you should shout louder. Maybe he's got bad hearing. Oh, I know, maybe, maybe Baal's busy. He's out traveling. Maybe that's why. And then he goes like full savage troll mode, and he's like, maybe Bill's in the bathroom. <laughs> he actually says that in the text. Like, it's hilarious. And this obviously triggers these false prophets of Baal big time, and so they're like, oh yeah, we'll show you, and they start cutting themselves. They're going full nasty on this, trying to shout louder and cut themselves and do anything they can to get Baal's attention. And it doesn't work, because as we said a second ago, Baal's not God, Yahweh is. And so then Elijah says, all right, it's my turn. He builds the altar. He's like, ah, I'm going to show you how much greater Yahweh is than Baal. Puts a ditch around the altar and then instructs the Israelites there to take 12 large jars of water and pour it over the wood, which comes down and fills that trench up. All right? Nobody's going to get that thing to light is the point. All right? And then with the Israelites and the prophets of Baal all watching, he prays this, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And before I finish reading, notice the content of his prayer, would you not? O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And upon this one worship-driven prayer request being given, fire fell from heaven, consumed not only the burnt offering and the wood, but the stones and all of the water that lay there in that trench, powerfully showing that Elijah's God, Yahweh, is the one true God who does answer his people's prayers, unlike Baal, who does not. And why does God answer our prayers, church? Because we keep asking because we keep babbling on and on and on, Lord, hear my prayer, Lord, hear my prayer, cut, cut, you know? No. It's because God is ultimately our Father, and babbling does not work to get his attention. It's not effective on, for him. It doesn't work to go on and on, babbling on, the same lines over and over to God. And here's the thing. Does that make any difference if we do that in our private prayers or in prayer through song? No. Right? 
We can do the same thing in our songs, and that's why we have to be careful with the songs we sing, because our songs we sing are worshipful prayers we are singing aloud together. And here's the point, though. God answers our prayers not because we put in enough prayer quarters into the machine. It's not the reason for it. God answers our prayers for one reason, and it's that word, Father, that Jesus starts with. He's our Heavenly Father. That is why. And do you realize how vastly different these two approaches are? Because they're very, very different. This is not a, like, splitting hairs sort of minor difference. One approach is to approach God how? By our works. You thought of it that way? One is to approach God by our works, and the other is to approach him as Father. How? By grace. It's the works-grace dilemma here. And grace is actually the only way that we can approach him. So the only way to approach him is as Father. And so when it says that God is our Father... Did that happen because we babbled on and on and on? Lord be my father, Lord be my father, Lord be my father, Lord be my father. No. No, it didn't happen that way. Did it happen because I was born that way? God, you know, he's the creator of the world. He's just my natural father. I can go to him and pray. Is that how that works? No. God does not hear the prayers of those who are not his children. And being born physically does not make you a child, a spiritual child of God. Does it happen if we go to church enough? Does it happen if we do more right things and less wrong things? Is it the scale system? Just have it in good balance and God will hear your prayers. Is that how it works? No. That way of approaching God is called religion. It's called moralism. All right? You ask hard enough. You ask long enough. And because you put the work in, we can go to him and say, Santa, you owe me. All right, what's the deal? You better deliver here. I wrote you this letter. Didn't you get it? Isn't that how we approach our prayers? You see how that's such a massive difference between the two? For the one, the works-based one is to approach God as a, if it's a contractual relationship, not a parental one, right? And so think about this. If your son or daughter, you know, if some, one of the little kids around here comes up to me, who's not my kids, and they say, hey, Pastor Zach, can I have $20? I want to go buy a new toy. I'd be like, No. Go ask your parents. What are you doing? Get out of here. (laughs) Right? Why? Because they're not my kid. All right? And if they keep asking me over and over every five minutes, is that going to convince me to do it? No, I'm just going to get annoyed to the point where I'm going to come talk to you and be like, you can get little Johnny in check. He's being rude. You know, like, get him off my case. I'm not giving him 20 bucks. But what if Emily, Lewis, Ian, well, Nora probably wouldn't ask this yet, but what if one of my kids came to me and asked me for that money? Would I actually seriously consider that, depending on what it was for? And, you know, maybe they said, hey, I really want, I really want to buy this, I really want this toy, you know, it's really great. And then I might think, okay, well, yeah, maybe not right now, but maybe, you know, birthday, whatever, you know, those, or maybe, maybe I just get, become soft dad and just give it to them, right? Like, why? Because I'm their father, right? Your kid, I'm not their father, right? If they, even if they give me puppy eyes, I'm going to be like, get out of here. Go find your dad. You know, like, I'm not, I'm not buying this for you. All right. But my kids, especially my daughters, who I'm much more easily molded by, if they come to me and really ask, that's where I'm like, no. Mm, okay. Right. Cause I'm their dad. And think about this because my relationship is to them as one as father. And like that changes everything. And so think about this with Ephesians one, four through six. Here's what this says. And this shows our relationship with our father. In love, 
our Father, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious, underline that word, grace. That's the basis of our adoption. It's grace. It's not all the babbling prayers we've given. It's grace, fully, right? In which he has blessed us in the beloved. And that verse tells us then that in Jesus Christ, we have been adopted to become his sons and daughters. How? Not because of something we did. That's not how adoption works. No kid, like you don't get adopted as a child because you're like, hey, I really want you to adopt me. You know, you don't, like, that's not how it works. The parent comes along and adopts the child. And so when it comes to our Heavenly Father, it's the same basis. And what does verse 6 say that basis is? His glorious grace. And not our works. Why? As Ephesians tells us in chapter 2, so that no one may boast. Don't get to boast about this stuff. It's totally grace. And so here's the question for you. You're still listening. Here's the question. Do you believe that? Do you think that your relationship with God is conditionally based upon your performance? Because if you do, not only are your prayers worthless, but your faith is worthless. Because you're not a Christian at all then. You're not born again whatsoever. You can't approach God by works and ask him to adopt you and, and, and pay him off with all these things. No, it's by his grace. His glorious grace, as Ephesians 1 says. For to be a Christian is to be one who has been adopted by the sheer glorious grace of our Heavenly Father. And when you come to believe this, where does it lead you next? It leads to worship. It leads to worshiping God for you see his wondrous majesty, which leads us to our second point. We worship God in prayer by first approaching him as Father and secondly, by approaching him as majesty. We saw this, I think it was two weeks ago, in Nehemiah's prayer. And before he got to his request at all for God to save Israel, what is he doing? Worshiping. Why? Because those are the cosmic quarters you've got to put in to get the results? No. He begins with worship because not only do we refer to God as Father, but what does Jesus say in that passage? As he quickly points out, we refer to him as our Father who is in where? Heaven. And why do we refer to him that way? Because we believe in twin truths. We believe in the doctrine of the eminence of God, right? We believe that God is eminent and also transcendent. And if you don't know what those attributes are, well, we have a class for that that starts next week. Shameless plug, join us. We're going to be studying each one of these attributes, which are vitally important for knowing who God is. But for now, I'm going to give you the short version. God is both near to us, he's imminent, and he's also not near to us. He's out there, completely otherly, completely distinct from his creation, which is transcendent. Which means this, God is not the big man upstairs. He's not. That's not how we refer to him. That's a completely pagan, non-transcendent way to think of God. The one who is the king of the ages, the immortal, the invisible, the God-only wise, to whom be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Or as the psalmist says, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. 
Amen and amen. And finally, in Romans 11, 33 through 36, which says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? Or who would have given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So yes, church, God is our Abba Father. But we must never forget that he is also the divine, sovereign, cosmic Lord of the universe who must be worshipped with reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. That is why. And in our culture, what tends to happen with these two twin truths is we pick one over the other. Right? Isn't that what happens? Well, it's true that God is our Father, and it is true that Jesus is a friend that is closer than a brother. He is a wonderful counselor. The truth remains, he is still mighty God. He is Yahweh, Lord, King, and Creator. And if you miss that element of your relationship to God, you miss either one of them. It's going to cause problems. And in fact, if you miss that, you miss the otherliness, the the wonder, the majesty of God. It's actually going to prevent you from appreciating the love of God. It is. It's going to prevent you from coming to really appreciate the fact that he is your father. Why? Here's why. Imagine, you know, our culture believes this. They believe, hey, you know, well, my God just forgives. He didn't need to send anybody to a cross. That's, that's child abuse. My God didn't need to do that. Have you ever heard anyone say that before? It's a very common thing in our culture. All right? And so instead of thinking of a God of divine wrath and punishment, they think of a God who winks at sin, who says, hi, you know what? And it's like the parent. They see their son, their kid do something that's naughty, but it's kind of cute, and they're like, don't do that, and they're trying not to smile, right? That's how we think of this kind of a God. That's how they think of him. And so let me ask you, though, is that a God who would you say cares a lot about justice? A God who cares a lot about his holiness? Is that a God who takes sin and injustice and evil in this world, as horrific as it is, very seriously? No, not at all. But now imagine with me a different God. A God who solemnly swears, saying, I will by no means spare the guilty. It's not going to happen. The end. A God who has created an eternal place of judgment called hell for all said guilty people who have violated his law, which is every person ever born. Whose smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, upon which they have no rest day or night, as Revelation 14 says. Now, you may prefer the first God over the one I just described, but let me ask you, would you say that this second God I just described cares about holiness? Would you say that this God cares about justice? Would you say that that's a God who takes sin very seriously? You would. There's another thing that we can't miss here. If God is simply a God of love who forgives everyone, then how can we fully appreciate his graciousness or the adoption we've been given by his wondrous grace? The answer is you can't. You absolutely can't. For until you come to see the divine weight of God's law and its 
demands for total and perfect justice, you cannot appreciate what God did to spare you from said justice. What did he do? You know the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Upon the cross, then, Jesus took our sin and our guilt, and he absorbed it into himself. He absorbed the wrath of God upon himself. And so, though Jesus was the only begotten Son of God, God the Father poured out the wrath that you and I deserved upon him. And why? That was the price for our adoption. Not babbling prayers, not going to church every Sunday, not doing more good things than bad things, and then giving our kind of spotted but kind of okay record to God. No, he did this so that we might be adopted and be called the sons and daughters of the living God. And so we recognize this in our prayers, and then when we do, what does that naturally do for us? It makes us approach God, yes, as Father, but as one who is the divine majesty, who is worthy of our praise. And so we go to him singing, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. That's the cry of our heart in prayer. And so we are, then as, we are to embrace this tension, not to pick one over the other. We're supposed to embrace the tension between the transcendence of God and the imminence of God, never once forgetting that we can only call him Father by the sheer wonderful grace that he gives us. You see now why our prayers to our Heavenly Father must always begin with praise and adoration? You see why prayer is praise? It's because by the grace of God, we have come to see the supreme worth of God. And so once we see this praise, Once we see this, we praise his glorious name, and then we naturally, what happens next is our heart's desire to hallow his name. What does that mean to be hallowed? It's not a word you hear very often. It means this. Hallowed means to be sanctified, or to be revered, or to be kept holy. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, what what are we asking for? How does this hallowing happen? Now, the Jewish people, they cared a whole lot about hallowing God's literal name, all right? For in Jewish thought, a name wasn't just some arbitrary designation given. You're like, ah, we'll call him Joe. Why not? Why? Because Billy was taken. No, it assigned meaning. It actually conveyed the nature and the essence of the thing being named. What it's doing with a name, then, is it's giving you information about that person. It's telling you what they're like which is why it's a really good idea to actually take time and go through because all the names of God throughout Scripture, there's lots of them, they convey aspects of his character to us. And so that's a good study to do. And so recognizing this, the Jewish people, historically, you know what they did with God's name? They were extremely reverent towards it. They would never call him the big man upstairs, right? They were very reverent towards God's name. And we don't have time this morning to go into all the ways that they did this how they approached God's name reverently, but I can tell you this, they absolutely wouldn't be caught dead texting OMG on their phones or saying it out loud. And it's not because they didn't have phones back then. It's because they revered the name of God, of Yahweh. They hallowed his name. 
To pray that God's name is hallowed is to pray as the psalmist did, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all of the earth. And while this includes caring about God's name, right, and hallowing his name as we just discussed, it's actually a whole lot more than that. It actually includes caring about God's reputation. Which means then, think about this, if we care about God's reputation and I'm an adopted child of God, does that make me care about my behavior and how that reflects upon my divine father? It does. And so the question we need to ask ourselves here is, does my life hollow God's name? Am I thankful that God has adopted me and is my father? And is that thankfulness reflected in my life as I strive to hollow his name by living a life of holiness, not by my own strength, but by his power? Do I have zeal for God to know him better, to give him glory? Or is my zeal, which is oftentimes merely theological zeal, for his name as a way of hollowing my own name? Tell me this. Is it possible to use theology and our passion for it, and our zeal for it, not to hollow God's name, but to hollow our own? To approach discussing God's name as it's merely an intellectual chess match in which we can get cheap points on those around us to show off our intellect, instead of hallowing his name by speaking of who God is and what he's like because we want to give him worship and respect? Of course this is. We can easily approach theology as a way of showing off or spiritually abusing others, which is nothing but misplaced, self-hollowing zeal. Look, zeal for God's name and his revealed truth is not a bad thing. But just as Moses, when he approached God, what did he do? Take off your shoes, for this is hollowed ground. We need to do the same thing when we approach the name of God, even in our theological conversations, not as a way to one-up each other, but as a way of showing reverence and awe to our Heavenly Father, for our God is a consuming fire. When it comes to hallowing God's name, the obvious question here from this text is this, do I worship God regularly through private prayer? Private prayer, right? What did the passage before this talk about public prayer? It didn't say don't ever do it, but if that's all you got going on and you're doing it to show off to others, you've got your reward. But the question is, do I worship God regularly through private prayer? Or do I have all these words to share about God when I got an audience? See, I can, it's easy, especially if you love theology like I do, to sit down and be like, all right, let's talk theology. This, 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 you're wrong on this, 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 cool. Are my words simply public about God? Or do I go to him privately as my heavenly father to worship him regularly, often? Is it my heart's desire? Do you know why prayer is the hardest spiritual discipline? It is. If you don't think it is, trust me, it is. And it's because of this. Because the essence of prayer is worship. And nothing reveals more what we truly worship than our private prayer life. You want to know where you're at and what you're worshiping? Look at your prayer life. 
The truth is, until we come to delight in God as we ought, private prayer will always be a duty to us that we struggle with instead of delighting with. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous preacher, writes this on this. I think he's right. He says, prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. He's right. Why? Because the essence of prayer is worship. It's communion with God as our Heavenly Father. And as Jesus says, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And until we come to see prayer, not as a list of things we go to God as our divine Santa Claus and say, gimme, 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 but instead go to God in prayer to seek communion with him and worship his holy name. And until we come to do that, our prayers are going to be powerless. Our prayers will be whispers in the night instead of thunderous cracks in the throne room of Almighty God, which is what they are, if we pray rightly, if we pray as Jesus said to pray. That's not the only thing we will miss out on, though. For until we come to approach God as Father and see our prayers as worship, we will miss out on the peace that surpasses all understanding of knowing God is our, not only our Father, but our Lord, which leads us to our final point. We worship God in prayer by approaching Him as Father, by approaching Him as Majesty, and finally as Lord. After addressing our, God as our Heavenly Father, verse 10 says what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You want to know one of the easiest ways to tell if you're approaching God in prayer as Father or not? It's this. What happens when your prayers aren't answered? I'm not just talking about little things like your favorite sports team winning. I'm talking about big things. Maybe it's a loved one who got sick and died. Maybe it's your own sickness or your own struggles, job loss. How do you respond? Do you say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Do you pray as Jesus prayed, not my will but thy will be done, as he prayed in the garden, asking that the cup might pass from him? Or do you get upset with God and start writing follow-up Santa Claus letters saying, God, you've got one week to get this right or else. Do you say, but God, I gave you the cookies. Did you forget? You only got half of the things I requested. That's not how our relationship with him works, though, is it? It's not a relationship where I put in the cosmic quarters and he dispenses the goods. That's not how it works. Maybe you don't get angry with God for unanswered prayers, but there's another equally wrong response you can have when God doesn't answer your prayers, and it's this. You get depressed. You feel guilty. You start to wonder that maybe the reason God isn't answering my prayers is because he's punishing me for what I deserve. I just haven't been a good enough child. No, no toys for Christmas, just coal. But this too is not to approach God as our loving Heavenly Father. It's to approach him religiously, contractually. 
See, with the first example, you get upset with God because you have an overinflated view of how good you've been. That makes sense? You overinflate how good you've been. God, I did the prayers. I went to church. I did what you asked me to do pretty much. Where you at here? Fix this now. But with the second example, we get upset with ourselves because not because we have an overflated view of how good we've been, but because, because we have an underinflated view of just how bad we've been. Why? Because we're still a trying to approach God by our own merit, but from the negative. And we become disappointed when he doesn't give us what we ask, and we think it's because we've been bad. And the reality is, we've been hopelessly more bad than any of us could possibly imagine. We haven't been nearly as good as we think, and in fact, our good before God is nothing but filthy rags, and our bad, which beats us up and makes us think, maybe I'm under punishment. It's like, no, if you were under God's punishment for your bad, you'd be in hell right now, not just receiving unanswered prayers. And so instead of approaching God this way, we approach him as our Father by his glorious grace, which is completely free, completely given. It's undeserved, and that's the point. Do you believe that? Do you believe that we approach God only by grace and that he always does what is best for us? Bear in mind, though, that this is a God who knows what we need, as the text says, even before we ask of it. We're not bringing information to him where he's like, oh, we almost missed that. Angels, go get them a new job. (laughs) He knows what we need before we ask of it. This is a God who has numbered the hairs on your head. A God who, as Isaiah says, is distressed by our distresses. Do you trust this kind of a God? you trust him in the darkness or only in the light where you can see where things are headed? This past week, Julie sent me a short article on the book of Malachi, which got me reading Malachi, and Malachi in that text, there's so much application here to what we're looking at this morning, right? It got me thinking about the Lord's prayer Excuse me. It got me thinking about the Lord's prayer and praying thy will be done instead of my will be done. And I was reading in that book of how God makes us pass through the fire as a refining process. And I was reading about that this week. And did you know this? If you try to bend metal before it's been in the fire and heated up to a certain temperature, what's that metal going to do? It's either not going to move at all or it's going to break. One of the two. But if you heat it up, What does that do to the metal? It weakens it. It weakens the structure of steel, right? And it makes it pliable, which allows you to bend and shape said metal. And so here's the thing. In Romans chapter 8, God promises us that all things work together for good. For everybody? No. For his adopted children. For those who love him and those who he loves. And so my question for you is this. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when God has you pass through the fires of this life, it's his way of molding your stubborn image into the image of Christ? My stubborn image that doesn't want to move into the image of Christ? Or do you believe that there are some things that actually don't work together for our good? And so then do you become angry or depressed when God doesn't get those things out of your life? Get this fire out of here. I don't like how this is making me feel. This hurts. This is weakening me, God. And if you're struggling to think that way, 
there's several, but there's really one really good reason that we shouldn't, and it's this. When the fires of life come, we should trust our Heavenly Father because this is a Father who sent His one and only begotten Son through the ultimate fire for you and for me. Why? So that we could endure the fires of this life and the fires after to come and come out on the other side perfected in the image of Christ. That's why Christ did that. And so when you see that kind of love, you realize you've already got everything you already need. Bring on sickness. Bring on job loss. Bring on hurt, pain, or death. Nothing, as Romans 8 goes on to say, can separate us from the love of God. We have, when we have God as our Father, we must remember this is a God who loved us so much that he sent his one and only Son to suffer and die in our place so that we can and not, only, not only endure the trials of this life, but endure the day of God's coming wrath upon this earth and enter through that victoriously into his kingdom, not as servants, but as adopted sons and daughters of the king. Are you a child of the king? Do you worship and adore God, and do you delight to share communion with him? Do you trust in the Lord, even in the hard times? And do you long for the day when his kingdom will come? Is that your prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I trust by his wondrous grace that that is true for you. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you that we can approach you as father, not as an angry and abusive father, but as a loving father who always gives us what we need, not what we want. And so, Father, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. We pray for those around us who don't know you as father who are raging against you, as we saw saw last week from Psalm 2. We pray, Lord, that we would, as adopted sons of the King, that we would go out and point them to how they too might be adopted, and it's completely by the grace of God, not works, that no one will boast. So, Father, we pray that we would live there in your grace. Our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, prone to forget that we call you Father, sheerly by your wonderful grace. So help us to remember that. Help us to live that way. And we'll praise you for it. Help us now as we go before you and take part in the Lord's Supper in this time of communion. Help us to examine our lives, to see if we are approaching you not as our Heavenly Father, but as a cosmic vending machine to give us the commodities we desire. And help us to repent of that and to trust in your grace once more. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This time going to be having the Lord's Supper, taking communion here together.